0: Thank you, thank you very much, David. Um, thanks to the band. I love a good TV drama. I especially love a good detective show, a classic Who Done It, or a police drama of some kind. I love it. I love the story. I love the intrigue. I love the questions. I love the twists and the turns. I could watch them for days, literally. And this, the passage that we're going to be looking at tonight is full of some of that drama. It is full of everything that a good U.S. drama would have. Maybe English too, but particularly the U.S. drama. It's got greed. It's got murder. It's got lies and deceit. It's got lust. It's got sex. It's got everything a good U.S. drama would have. The difficulty, however, is that this account, this passage that we're going to be looking at tonight, is not fiction. It's not in the Bible for our entertainment. This passage is actually tragic. It it is painful. It is difficult to listen to. It's difficult for many of us to read and engage with. And the reason for that is because in this passage that we'll look at tonight, we see how the sinful actions of an individual brings devastation not only to them, but to the people around them as well. And that's why I think this makes this passage impact all of us. Because all of us have experienced the, the consequences of someone else's sinful choices. Or perhaps even we have been at the center and we have seen how our sinful choices ripple out far further than we could have ever imagined. And perhaps you've heard the account of David and Bathsheba before. Perhaps you've even heard a sermon on it before. Perhaps you've never heard this story, but somehow your interest has been perked. However we hear this message this evening, I plead with you from the outset to please engage. This is one of the passages of Scripture that sometimes we look at and automatically think of who this might apply to. And so because tonight we're going to think about David and Bathsheba, which shows us the causes and consequences of adultery. Maybe perhaps your mind automatically goes to families that you know who have been impacted by that. Maybe your mind automatically goes to that piece of gossip that you've heard going around the workplace. Maybe your mind goes to everyone else who this could impact, and in doing that, we lose something. We lose the sense of impact that it could have for each and every one of us, which I totally believe that this story has. See, this passage... This is a passage where we plainly see how the effects of our actions, no matter how seemingly small they seem to us, can lead us down paths that we never intended to go down. And very often, by the time we realize we're down the path, the damage to ourselves and to others has already been done. And so tonight, we're going to think about temptation. And on a commentary on this passage, one commentator has really helpfully stated that Satan doesn't start out tempting us with the big sins. He simply invites us to gaze and assures us that no harm will come of it. And so yes, we might instinctively read this passage and think this doesn't apply to me, but I think this statement makes it apply to all of us in some way or another. And so with that being said, this passage does contain a wealth of lessons, and we could do a whistle-stop tour and only scratch the surface of some of those, but I don't think that would be doing justice to any of it. And so tonight, I want to look at the obvious implications that this story raises around issues of relationships and sex. Now, as I've mentioned already, that doesn't mean that the lessons we learn for this area of our lives don't impact on the others. Those are transferable skills, if you like. But let me warn you in light of that that tonight might be uncomfortable. I know it is for me. I might talk about things not normally talked about in church, but isn't it encouraging that the Bible, that God's Word, shines light on every part of our lives? And actually, I think we would be doing a disrespect to the Word of God if we tried to gloss over the ugliness that it often presents right in our face. So let's dive in. And we're gonna be thinking, as the screen will show, about 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And if you are looking at the Pew Bibles in front of you, that is on page 314. Now, because we're covering two chapters tonight, we're not gonna read it all. Um, You'll be glad to know. Uh, And we're also not gonna deal with everything that both of those chapters raise. And so in light of that, let me summarize the context and outline the story for us, and we will read one section of it, if you don't mind. We are four weeks into an evening series here at Windsor, which is basically like a season two of a box set And last year, we started season one, where we saw the rise of David from a young shepherd boy to becoming the second king over all of Israel. And four weeks ago, we started season two. And since then, we've been looking at the start of David's reign. And so far, it's been pretty good. David has seen some fairly good military gains as king. He's been enjoying a a pretty close relationship with the God who put him on the throne. And as David, as in our David, Pastor David, not King David, that's complicated— Don't call our pastor David King David. That's not okay. Um, As David, our David, was showing us last week, David has been, King David, has been (laughs) demonstrating and, and executing his reign with grace. And he has been held in high esteem by the Israelite people up until this point. And that very roughly brings us to the start of chapter 11. And chapter 11 begins with some interesting phrases that we will come back to later, but I just want to highlight for now. 2 Samuel chapter 11 starts with In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, nothing seems too out of the ordinary here until we see how the story continues in the rest of verse 2 through to verse 4. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. And now we see the problem that was caused by David being in Jerusalem, rather than being on the battlefield with his men where he should have been. And back to the details later, but the account continues And it's revealed through chapter 11 that Bathsheba falls pregnant as a result of her night with King David. And in the context of the day, we need to recognize that that meant some serious issues because the penalty for adultery was death. And seeing as Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was on the battlefield, this pregnancy is going to cause some serious issues for Bathsheba and whoever the father was. As a result, then, in one of the strangest attempted cover-ups that I know of, David sends word to his military commander, Joab, and he says, send Uriah home. So Uriah comes back, and David entertains him. And basically, David tries to explain that, look, Uriah, you've had a hard time. Head home and spend the night at home, and then you can go back to the battlefield. Evidently, David is trying to make sure that Uriah goes home, spends the night with Bathsheba, so that Bathsheba's pregnancy seems the result of their union, and therefore no one will ever have to know about David's night with Uriah's wife. Sounds like a good plan, but it's foiled. And it's foiled because Uriah is a man of honor. We see from 1 Samuel 21 that active duty soldiers aren't supposed to have sex with their wives when they're on active duty. Uriah knows this and he also explains to David that the ark of the covenant of the Lord is being is spending the night in a tent. The rest of his mates on the battlefield are spending nights in a tent, so how dare he go home and spend the night with his wife? So Uriah sleeps outside. David, he hasn't finished yet, and so the next day he he invites Uriah back into the palace, gets him stocious drunk in the hope that Uriah will forget his principles and head home and spend the night with Bathsheba. Doesn't work again, and so unfortunately David resorts to plan C. And plan C, is where we see some very evil being worked out before us. Where David sends a note back to the battlefield with Uriah. And What about the irony of that, by the way? Uriah is carrying the note. And in the note, whenever he gets to Joab, Joab, the military commander, reads the note which plainly says from King David, put Uriah in the fiercest point of the fighting. When things are getting really bad, withdraw the rest of the troops to ensure that Uriah is killed. Joab follows his orders, and Uriah is killed. Uriah is not the only one killed, by the way. And so David, when he hears this, Uriah has been killed, and so the cover-up continues, and he takes Bathsheba to be his wife, which is a way of preserving both of their lives, and he, I guess he's hoping that nobody discovers the discrepancy in the 12-week scan. Now we enter chapter 12, and it seems as if David has gotten away with things, And then Nathan, who is David's spiritual advisor. Nathan is a prophet of God. And he comes to meet with David and brings a message from God. And this is where we're going to read the first 14 verses of chapter 12. And as we do, and as our practice here in Windsor, if you'd like to stand with me, if you're able, for the public reading of God's Word. So 2 Samuel 12, the first 14 verses. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said... There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank of his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare the meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if all of this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Grab your seat and let me explain the rest of the story and the rest of this chapter. Chapter 12 continues with the tragic unfolding of the consequences God has laid out. So David and Bathsheba's firstborn does die. And all of the rest of the consequences in the later chapters through 2 Samuel are laid out before us. David's family is shattered with tragedy and with deceit. Three of David's sons suffer violent deaths. Another of David's sons, a guy called Absalom, he tries to oust David from the throne. And when that doesn't work, he then takes his dad's Absalom takes David's concubines to the roof of the palace and sleeps with them in broad daylight. See, all of the things that God said would come to pass did, including the hope that Nathan brought. The hope that is spoken also comes to pass. And so David and Bathsheba do give birth to another son and that he will become the next king of Israel, the great Solomon. And so it's clear that although David has fooled many, he cannot fool God. God sees the lies, he sees the deceit, he sees the injustice, he sees the murder, but we also see that God is always there to provide forgiveness and grace and restoration. And so with that total account in our minds, with that as our umbrella that we're gonna sit on for the whole evening, I do want us to hone in on one of the major issues. And that is the issue that sparked the whole sequence of events in the first place. And that is, of course, David's inappropriate desire for Bathsheba, David's lust. Now, I think it's worthwhile saying that if I could have chosen any passage to speak on on the life of David, I would have chosen this one. And that sounds weird, (laughs) but it's because And again, this sounds weird, but I have a real passion for this area. I have a passion for seeing people with healthy relationships. I have a passion for seeing the church wrestle with what the Bible says about relationships and sex. And some of you will know that for two and a half years, I had the pleasure of working with Love for Life, who are a charity based here in Northern Ireland, delivering relationships education to 30,000 young people every year. This is something I love talking about. And that sounds weird. Come round to my house for dinner and it won't be on the agenda. That's okay, it's safe. But from this pulpit, I think we have a huge opportunity and responsibility to say, here is something we can learn a lot about that affects everyone. But what is lust? is Is lust all bad? Is lust the same as sexual desire? And in that case, is sexual desire bad? Well, we need to figure this out. And David figured out that lust was an incredibly destructive force, but it is something that affects many of us in many different ways. And it's often assumed that lust is a male issue. It's not. We need to let that cut out of the bag. It is not just a male issue. This is an issue that has the potential to control your life. It is the potential to ruin your relationships. And I believe it is the potential to cause a fracture in your intimacy with our holy God. So this is a serious issue, but we need to begin by, by trying to come up with and land on a usable definition of what lust is. And there's lots out there. The dictionary would say that lust is strong sexual desire. Other sources would say that it is an emotion or a feeling that, oh, well, let me get this right, an emotion or a feeling of intense desire within the body, and therefore not just about sexual desire. Obviously, in our context of David and Bathsheba, we want to think about what lust means in terms of relationships and sex. And there's a a pastor in America called Matt Chandler, and he has defined lust in this way, that lust to look upon a woman or a man or a woman with lustful intent is to want from them what you are not in a covenant with them to get. To take what is not yours is a better way to say it. Now, I think that, that definition is helpful Unfortunately, it's not that portable for me to take with me through the rest of the sermon. And so what I want to do is explain another definition of lust that a friend of mine from England once told me through a sermon that he was delivering on this topic. And he explained that lust is sexual desire out of proportion. Sexual desire out of proportion. And I think this is most helpful because it clarifies that the problem is not with sexual desire itself. Sexual desires we see from the perfect created order of God in Genesis 1 and 2, that is not a problem. God has gifted us with the gift of sex. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see Adam and Eve created in perfection, and into that perfection, God introduces the gift of sex. In the rest of Scripture, for example, Song of Solomon, we see sex and the desire for sex between a husband and a wife celebrated and rejoiced. And so I think the biblical standpoint is that sex is a really good gift that God gives. And therefore, I don't think that Christians have any place to be anti-sex. Now, of course, there's a caveat to that because the the design of God is for a specific context. In Genesis and throughout scripture, we see that God has given us the gift of sex to be celebrated and enjoyed between a husband and a wife in a lifelong commitment of marriage and what Matt Chandler calls that covenant of marriage. And when enjoyed within that framework, sex can be wonderfully and and forcibly unifying for a husband and wife. Now, of course, that's not the context in which we see sex taking place with David and Bathsheba. Here we see humanity taking a good gift from a loving God and misusing it. And isn't that the way we see it played out in the world around us today? God gives good things, Yet through our misuse of them or through our rejection of the original design for them, we reap the consequences of that. So as we think about lust, the issue is not with sexual desire in and of itself, because God has created us as sexual beings and he's given us the gift of sex. And so the issue with lust is who you are desiring this is what my friend meant by explaining that lost the sexual desire out of proportion. Come with me back to the start of chapter 11 to explore this further. And we've seen already from verse two that one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. So far so good. Don't have any problems with this so far. Then from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now this is where we begin to see some problems, and this is where a lot of us begin to get a little uncomfortable. Because some of us might be thinking that there's nothing wrong here. David hasn't done anything yet. He's just had a little peek. You might hear phrases like, he's just looking at the menu. He's not ordering. Now, I don't want to be flippant about this, actually, because not only do I believe an attitude like that is unhelpful, I actually believe it is unbiblical to have an attitude like that. See, surely and clearly, it is David's eye that causes him to sin. It's his eye which he allowed to lead his thoughts. And that's where we are then introduced to what Jesus said about this in Matthew 5, that you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus explains in a sobering fashion here, that this is not just about actions. Lust is not just about what you do, but as we often say in Windsor, this is a matter of the heart. And in David's case, he has seen Bathsheba, he desires her, but because she is not his wife, his desire is out of proportion. And now we need to pause a bit and talk about us for a minute. Because here we see how this impacts every single one of us. If, if sexual desire is to be reserved for your spouse, how do we navigate the culture that we live in? Where everywhere you turn, there seems to be sexual temptation or sexual suggestion, how do we make our way through day by day? See, we live in a very different world from David's. We no longer have to go for a late night stroll on the roof to see something dodgy. All we need to do is wake up, it seems. How do we manage this in a world where the watershed seems so porous? How do we manage this in a world where the pornography industry grows every day? And we now have research that shows that the average age of someone's first exposure to pornography is 11 years old. That can't be right. Love for Life's research would show that 29% of 15-year-old Northern Irish boys watch Internet porn every day. Our world is a dark place, so how do we navigate this? Now, I I could quote lots more stats about the porn industry and the danger of it and all of that, but I, I need to recognize that porn is not the only way people lust. And so let's broaden this out a little bit. How do we manage this world that we live in? How do we manage the temptation around us when we're single? How do we manage it when we're going out with somebody and not yet married? How do we manage it when we're married? How do we manage this in a world that says, whatever you want, that's paramount? Doesn't matter what you've covenanted to. If you want it, you get it. How do we manage this? The reality is that no matter what stage you're at, the truth of Scripture impacts every single one of us in the same way. See, we need to recognize that it's not the temptation that's the sin. It's what we do once we're tempted that can lead us to sin. See, we're never promised in Scripture that we won't be tempted. In fact, the very off- opposite. But what it does highlight is the path that temptation can lead us down. Now, I know I'm jumping about a bit, but James 1, 14 to, uh, 14, 15 says, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And we can see, with this as a framework, we can see how David fell into this trap. He saw Bathsheba. He allowed his, his the way they told me they were leaving, they're not <laughs> freaking out. He saw Bathsheba. He allowed his thoughts to dictate his actions. His actions led to sin. His sin led to death. So if that is the, the direction the temptation takes us, how do we step out? How do we break that cycle? How do we not follow David down that path? Well, I want to highlight two things. And like any good preacher, those two things have subpoints. And so the first thing that I want to mention, and this might not be what you're expecting, but how to deal with lust and temptation, get your eyes on God. See, if we want to try to see breakthrough in this area, if we want to try to live lives that are holy, if we want to try to live lives that avoid the kind of pitfalls that David fell into, then we need to get our eyes focused on something, or should I say more correctly, someone who is greater than anything that the world has to offer. See, in chapter 12, when David is confronted with Nathan, by Nathan, with the truth that he has done, his reaction in verse 13 really stood out to me as I was preparing this. He exclaims, I have sinned against the Lord. And later, as we've seen, David was then directed to pen Psalm 51 as a response to what has happened here. And in Psalm 51, we see him with this sentiment again saying, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, you may, like me, when I was reading this, think, hang on a minute, surely David sinned against Bathsheba. Surely he sinned against Uriah. Surely he sinned against Joab and the other soldiers who died. How can he say that against you, you only have I sinned when he's talking to the Lord? You see, of course those people were impacted by David's sin. But I believe he rightly sees the priority that he has sinned against a holy God. David clearly has such a high view of the holiness of God that he recognized that sinning against him was the greatest disaster he could do. And I know I don't quite understand this, but when you follow it through, it begins to make a little bit more sense. Because if we understand the awesome holiness of God, then our thoughts, then our actions become about pleasing him because of the relationship he's drawn us into through the price that he paid to welcome us home. See, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, he becomes the object of our affection. And therefore, everything else starts to disappear. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So in our moments of weakness, in our moments of temptation, we turn to Jesus Because Jesus brings ultimate and eternal comfort, not to the cheap substitutes that the world would offer, that yes, might bring a short-term release, but at what long-term cost? So how do we deal with lust and temptation? Get your eyes on God. The second thing we need to do, which obviously can inform and aid the first, is to choose wisely. And I want to suggest that there are three areas of life that we need to choose wisely in if we want to see breakthrough in this area. And the first thing, and, and I hope as we, as we sort of come towards the end of our time together, I hope that these will, will form practical steps that you can put into place as soon as you leave here, if not before. And so the first area of choosing wisely that I want to look at is choose wisely what you allow yourself to be exposed to. See, this is important because what David saw led him to sin. And we're not called, I'm not suggesting that we walk around with our heads on the ground, trying with all of our might to not see something that might be vaguely sexual in nature. But what I am suggesting is that the issue is what we do when we see something. Do we quickly divert our eyes? Do we not allow that glance to become a lingering look? The most helpful advice I can give is advice that someone gave me, which was to bounce your eyes, which is weird but follow me through. If you're walking down the street and you see something that you know might spark a thought that's not going to be helpful, look at something else. If you're driving down the street and you see a girl who's in the summer enjoying the hot weather, are you going to watch her walk by or are you going to bounce your eyes to something else? Now, if you're driving, bounce your eyes to the road. (laughs) But are we going to bounce our eyes? Are we going to allow that look to start to allow us to entertain thoughts? Or are we going to say, no, that's not going to be helpful. I'm looking at something else. So there's temptation all around us. But from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we know that God always provides a way out for temptation. And I could talk lots about what that way out might look like, but the obvious thing is sometimes the way out of temptation is not to invite it in, in the first place. And to put some legs on that, can I ask some very difficult and searching questions? For example, what channels are available through your television? What websites are accessible from your phone, from your tablet, from your computer? What magazines do you allow yourself to browse through? What novels have you read recently? See, these are difficult questions, (laughs) because often they will involve you having to to explain certain actions to other people that it could affect. For example, if you very wisely have an Internet filter on your home Internet network, You might have to explain to the rest of your family why that's there. And that could sound like a horrible and awkward conversation, but I would like to suggest that having that conversation with your family about how you want to protect yourselves from temptation, how you want to aim for God's high standards of holy living, that's going to bear great fruit in your family relationships. By the way, there are loads of internet filters out there. I I don't really care which one you get. Just get one and install it on your home network. So we need to be careful. We need to choose wisely about what you allow yourself to be exposed to. Secondly, can I suggest that you choose wisely who you journey through life with? And I have found this to be incredibly helpful that to have individuals who you trust enough that you can be accountable with in this area, individuals who can ask you how you're doing, individuals like Nathan, who can point out ungodliness when they can see it, but also that can bring the hope of life with God when you haven't seen it for yourself. And so we need to recognize that God doesn't leave us to meander our way through this life on our own, but he provides us with treasured companions for that journey. And so let's be a community of believers who love and trust each other enough to share the deepest parts of our lives with one another. Now, not everybody, but a treasured and trusted few. And in terms of, because I mentioned it earlier, let me highlight a couple of me- accountability mechanisms that are available if pornography is one of the issues. Okay? Now I'm not suggesting that it might be, but statistics would tell me that it is. And so the first is X3 Watch. Now this is from an organization called TripleXChurch.com, who are based in America. And what this is is an accountability software that you download for your computer, and your accountability partner gets an email every two weeks of any questionable websites that you might have visited. Now, that obviously has two, two impacts. It allows your accountability partner to have hard evidence to, to have a conversation with you about, what are you doing here? How can we beat this together? But it also is a great incentive to not visit those sites in the first place. If porn is an issue that you're dealing with and struggling with, then click to the kick is a new initiative that's been launched by a brilliant organization in America called Naked Tr- uh, in the UK called the Naked Truth Project. And so this is online accountability and support groups. And so please visit that if you need more information. And finally, EXIT is an organization, a sort of a group of organization that is based locally here within Northern Ireland. And so if you just want more information, if you want to find out whether this is a real issue or not, if you want to find out how to help somebody who comes to you with this issue, then please visit exit.org.uk and you can find some helpful advice from local people on there. So we've seen, how do we deal with lust and temptation? You get your eyes on God and you choose wisely what you allow yourself to be exposed to and what and who you journey through life with. And finally, if we collectively want to deal with this issue, we need to choose wisely about the attitude that we hold. And what I mean by this is that we need to realize that every single one of us are in need of God's grace. Every single one of us has areas of our lives that we need to work on. And that should inform a couple of things. It should inform our attitude to people who share with us their burdens. And it should also inform how we approach our holy and loving God. And so it should inform others who share with us because our attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, that we demonstrate grace. And that can be really hard. And I am not suggesting that if someone who shares something with you if that is hurtful for you, I'm not saying that you pretend that it's not hurtful. But I'm just saying that somehow we need to show the grace that we've been shown. And man, that's a challenge. And secondly, then it, appro- it, our attitude, it, it impacts our attitude and how we approach our loving and holy God. Because to take David's model, his reaction was to approach God in Psalm 51, where we see him repentant of his sin, where we see him uh, agonizing with God, where we see him pleading with God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. And so we recognize and remember that God sees and knows everything. But despite that, his offer of grace and forgiveness are available for all of us, whatever stage we're at. Now, I hope that we've shared some significant, a significant time together this evening. I hope that that's been helpful for some of you. But I think it's important that we take time to pause as we finish and recognize that we've seen a lot. And through the account of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we've seen that lust is sexual desire out of proportion, that this is really a matter of the heart. But we've also glimpsed that the world offers us huge temptations, and so if we want to avoid those, if we want to avoid the trap, we need to fix our eyes on God, and we need to choose wisely about what we allow ourselves to be exposed to, and about who we journey through life with, and the attitude that we hold. And as we finish, I I really do want to be sensitive in this, because we've raised some issues that are difficult, and I know there will be some who struggle immensely with the things that I've talked about. And we need to recognise that God doesn't want to doesn't want to leave us in our sin. He wants to rescue it, rescue us from it. Now that might not be an easy journey, but the freedom that Christ offers is worth it. Now we also need to be sensitive to those in the room who have been affected by the sinful decisions of others. And we need to continue to be a place where it's okay to share your burdens. And we need to be a place where people find healing for that. But however you're affected by all of this, please don't leave tonight if you've been confronted by God about something. Don't leave anything undone if God has been highlighting something. But don't do it on your own either. After the service, there'll be prayer ministry available, and I know—I know, I know that that's a big ask. It's difficult most of the, most of the times to, to take the courage to come forward to ask somebody for help and prayer, and on a night like this, are you kidding me, Drew? But don't struggle on your own. We want to be a community of people who walk together. We're all broken. Nobody's claiming perfection here. So, help. Each other. And as we close, I pray that we would be a community of believers who celebrate God's design for sex. I pray that we would be a positive message in a world filled with such brokenness. I pray that those caught in the snare of temptation would know freedom. I pray that the lives that have been impacted by the sinful choices of others would be healed. And I pray that all of us would know the joy of our salvation.